0: Well listen, last week uh really this is the a little bit tied into last week, I I just the, the, the thrust of the message last week as the, the church being networked together, that we belong to one another, is that we would be together in identity, together in life, and together in mission. And really this morning what I want to do is just continue that theme, but really hone in on the idea of being together in our mission. Uh so exciting just to hear some people um share some ideas and thoughts as to why they've why they've committed here. Um I just I love the different things. I didn't even know on a Carol's menu that you had things like that, Marco, but that's that's good to find. I eat at Carol's all the time and I don't ever see those truths <laughs> printed on the on the menu there. Kidding. Uh but but really so encouraging um just to hear from our brothers and sisters about about what it is to to be together. And I, I, I echo Marco's sentiment that it's been so so neat. It's just such a thrill to see the visible church, to see you guys committed to one another, to receive um, love and rebuke, you know, sharpening me, keeping me on, on track, and to see that one to another. Each week, what we've been doing in this series is picking up a different biblical metaphor and examining it. And as we pick up the metaphor and kind of look around and say, what does the Bible have to say about this? What is this teaching us? Um, it's really been shaping and reminding and refining who we are as a church and what we're to be doing as a church. And those are really important themes to keep in front of us and to, and to keep thinking about. Notice that your, our identity and our function. So who we are and what we do is really married together. And if you, if you separate those out, you begin to, To quickly get off onto some heresy side roads off of the straight and narrow. If you, if you just linger on who we are without what we're to be doing, it leads to some bad things. And if you, if you get to all about doing without really an understanding of who we are, it turns into some other kinds of heresy. This morning we're taking a look at a, a military motif. And we're using military as, as a, as a metaphor for who we are as a church, uh, for a few different reasons. And let me give you a, a couple. One is because it's biblical. The Lord reveals himself in, in this way, that he's the Lord of heaven's armies. We, we, we know from the scriptures that, that the spiritual um, ranks have, have different ranks, legions of, of, of uh, angels. And, um, and the idea of, of a soldier in active duty is presented to us, as what it means to walk as a Christian. There's victory and defeat talked about. There's a fight and a struggle discussed. The idea that, that we're to be strong and put on the armor of God. These are all military motif kinds of things, so we're going to grab that and look at it and see what it has to teach us. I think partly the military idea of what it means to be a church is really, really accessible. I mean, think about history, and any time in history, any history book, ever written and try to think of a time where there's not been armies and battles to be won, fought, and lost. I mean, it's accessible across all of time and across all people. And of course, the spiritual and earthly truths that are seen in the, in the kind of army fighting motif is, is there as well. Um, just think about some of the. Uh, I'm going to pull some movies in just to kind of help illustrate this morning. Think about some of the great books that you've read, some of the stories that you've that you've um, you know talked about and retold, and some of the movies that you really really enjoy. I would venture to guess that that most, if not all of them, have to do with some struggle, some conflict between good and evil. And and there it is before us. There's life and death consequences in the military. Your lot is cast together in the military. I'm gonna allow you as community groups this week to kinda of, to kind of explore some more of, of of drawing that out. Um but uh but but those are just a few opening thoughts. I wanna pause here. I know that some of the guys in here are immediately like Yes, military and church. This could be an exciting church service for once. You know, I'm excited about that. Battle, fight, you know, let's let's talk about this. And I know that some people are immediately lost the second we talk about church and military in any way, shape, or form. Let me just challenge you with this. Let me challenge you not to close your ears off and somehow be clouded to what the Bible might be teaching us and instructing us about the nature of the spiritual walk just because of our bias, just because sinful people have taken armies and done evil, wicked things with them in the past. Let's take that and set that aside. We use the term father in here all the time. And some of you have to allow by God's grace for God to paint a picture of what a father ought to be, not the father that that, that you had growing up. So in the same way, if you have a bias against the military and against armies and and all you can think of is wickedness with that, let me just just have you just pray silently that, that God would redeem that and allow you to hear what he has to teach us. Let's go back to this local church definition that we've been working with and kind of looking at. For the sake of our discussion this morning, I'm going to highlight for you the action words in here. So these are the things that, that according to this definition we've been working off of, that, that we're to be doing. We're, we're those who confess, we organize, we gather, we observe, we are unified, we are disciplined, and we are scattered. Already you could take that and overlay it onto kind of an army thought, and you could see, wow, those are... Those are some things that, that we would expect of what it would be like to, to enlist in the service and go and engage in some great struggle or conflict. But not only are we to be doing some things, let me show you the identity factor. We are a community, a local church is a community that does all these different things, and then what's the bottom say, as missionaries. Do you notice something? Here's what it says. As a local church, it's not that we're a local church, and then there's a side little pocket of people who are really weird and like to eat strange things and wear polyester all the time, and we commission them as missionaries, and we send them out, and we're all like, "Phew, glad it's not us going to Africa. That's not what it says. The local church is a community that does all these different things, and we live as missionaries, all of us. And that's what we really want to get to the heart of today, is what is the mission? And that's why it fits so well with the kind of military idea. If you're taking notes, you can write three things down. Uh, The mission is clear and knowable. So in terms of understanding what it is to be a Christian, and what is the church supposed to be doing, it's clear and knowable. Think about military missions and how clear they must be. I'm going to put up a movie poster here, and some of you have seen this before. But um, if you've seen this movie, what was the mission? There was a lot that went on in the hour and a half or two hours, however long it was. What was the mission of, of the, the people sent off in this movie? Save to save Private Ryan, right? I mean, I'm not going to ruin anything it's, if you haven't seen it yet. It's right there in the title. Okay. There were a lot of things that came at them. There were plans that were made that had to be altered. There were decisions that were made of to who would go here and who would stay there, who would eat what, who would pack what. But at the end of the day, everyone knew, the audience knew, the people, the, the, the characters in the mission knew, they all knew the mission. It was to save Private Ryan. Okay. Now here's another one. Maybe you're not into war movies. Um, but but there's a whole trilogy of movies that were filmed over in New Zealand, and a few people evidently saw these movies. Um there was a recent installment about you know the Hobbit, right? The the, the whole prequel idea. So what was in the whole trilogy of the 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 Lord of the Rings, what was the mission? To destroy the ring, okay? Now, we had a neat little discussion last night. I tested this on my family, two big Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy fans are my wife and my, my oldest son who've read the books and seen the movies and yada, yada. So I asked them. They both answered differently than what you all did. I thought it's to destroy the ring. And they were like, here's how nuanced they were. They were like, well, really, the fellowship's goal was to support Frodo to fulfill his mission, which was to destroy the ring. And I was like... Oh wow, that's actually actually more accurate, you know, than, than what it was. But for us simpletons, a simple folk, we just say to destroy the ring, right? So that's what we know. But here's the point: three movies, four movies now, right? Hours long, because these are long movies. And the mission is really, really clear. There's one thing that's driving the whole story. It's always pointing to this one thing, to destroy the ring. It's all pointing back to that so it is with the Christian walk, so it is with us as the church, is that it, is it we have a complex storyline in some ways. Rob just confessed to being up here and saying, man, I was distracted this week. I wasn't thinking on the beauty of Christ. I was thinking on something else. My son leaned over to me and said, see, chores don't really matter. I don't think that was the point. <laughs> that wasn't really the point Rob was getting at, and I'm going to have a talk with Rob later on, not to say that when my family's around, but... Um, but, but the reality is our, 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 our weeks are filled with all kinds of decisions, but is there a destroy the ring mission in our mind at all times? Is there a, at the end of the day, save Private Ryan kind of storyline where we go, we know our orientation, we know where we're headed, we know where we're pointed. There's a little book that if you've ever visited John MacArthur's church down in Southern California, I don't know if he still does it, but he gives this out. It's a little booklet he wrote called Found God's Will. And what he noticed was this. As he went around the country and spoke at different places and was on university campuses and all kinds of stuff, people constantly are asking him, I just want to know God's will. I find that same thing. I talk to a lot of people. They go, man, I just want to know God's will. Sometimes people are paralyzed because they want to know God's will. So he wrote this little booklet. It was so good. I just want to show you an, an excerpt from it. Uh, this is just a tiny little part, but he says this. God's will is that pe- I'll just save you the trouble of reading the 65 pages or whatever it is. God's will is that people be saved. Either you are not saved from your sin and you need to come to Christ because that is God's will, or you are saved and need to reach others with the message of salvation. What John MacArthur has done here is he's he's boiled down a couple of passages that we keep returning to in this series, and it's the Great Commission. What does the Great Commission tell us, church? You're a, you're a well-biblical Literate Church. What does the Great Commission tell us? Call it out to me. To go and make disciples. To teach them. Right, there's more to it. To baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To teach them all that I've commanded you. The Great Commission, which by the way, our Bibles say the Great Commission as a heading, it doesn't start off that way. Why did it get this lofty title in our English Bibles that says the Great Commission? Here's where you find the Great Commission. Does it deserve that lofty title, or is that just another little picture, you know, a little part of Scripture? It deserves that title because so many other things in the Bible keep pointing back to the Great Commission passages. You can find them in the Gospels, and we're going to look in the book of Acts. You can turn to Acts 1, by the way, as as we're talking here this morning. The Bible routinely reaffirms the importance of what you just called out to me as the Great Commission go and make disciples, is the churches, save Private Ryan, destroy the ring. Lots of other things are going to come at you, but there's one orientation that you keep coming back to, that you test everything else by. Are we still on track with this? Because if we've lost this, we've lost the mission. We ought to disband as a fellowship, as it were. We ought to go AWOL from the, from the military, because we're not doing what we've been commanded to do. Go and make disciples. We mimic our missionary God by being missionaries, by just being a herald, a witness. Around here, we tend to show this play button a lot. And the point, the point that everything points to is this little word, share. First and foremost, as Christians, we're to share salvation, the gospel that's the most important way we could ever love someone else is to share salvation with them now we're also to share our stuff and to share ourselves with people by just being a servant by just coming and being present i love this idea that i learned from a book this week uh god smuggler which i'm going to reference later but he he just he was talking about the differences about ministering in eastern bloc communist countries back in the 60s And now he's really trying to minister in Islamic countries. And he's pointing out some of the challenges and and differences in that. And what he says is this. He writes this kind of epilogue looking back on God's smuggler, which was written in the 60s. And he's writing now in the 2000s. He says this. He says, what I'm finding with the Islamic communities is this. Just being present, like presence evangelism, is massive. Going and sharing yourself and your stuff with people and really living christ among them in these nations is huge. Unlike the Eastern Bloc countries where he tried to get in before, these countries aren't totally closed. You can get in as a Christian if you're a teacher, if you're a doctor, if you have something to come and bring and serve the people with. He points to Matthew 25 where he says this. This is Jesus at the end of the age, and he's he's saying, blessed are you because I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you came and you visited me. And what Brother Andrew points out with this is this. He says, you know what it takes to give someone something to drink? Being there with them. What does it take to feed someone except being physically there with them? What does it take to visit someone in prison except actually going and being with them? Of all this ministry through all the Eastern Bloc countries, something shaped him early on in his ministry. He was there. He didn't know what he was going to say. He was a young guy. He just, he just had a Bible to give away. And he spoke this kind of butchering sermon, he said, to to the people. And the pastor came up to him at the end and he said this. He said, more than all your words, your presence here is gift enough. It lets us know that we're not alone as a church in this persecution. Thank you for just being here. So we share the salvation message, but we also share our stuff. We also share ourselves. How about the great commandment? Jesus was approached, you know this. uh, He was asked what the greatest commandment was. What did he answer? To love the Lord your God, God, right? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he gave a second one. The second one is like it. He said what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So love God and love your neighbor. Here's how we communicate that as a church. Worship is about the adoration of God. That's all it is. It's not us paying God back. It's not us attending services. It's not us reading through the Bible every year, all of which may be great. That's just loving God with everything that we are. And this community that you heard spoken of earlier from some of our brand new members that we just celebrated is this is this command to love one another. Some people are fooled into thinking, you know what, it's just me and God. That's not a biblical Christianity at all. Listen to 1 John 4.20. This is John writing near the end of his life. The beloved disciple is what he was called. He says this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Maybe John was hearkening back to these words Jesus spoke so long ago in his life, where Jesus said this, hey, you want to get all the law and all the prophets wrapped up in one simple command? It's love the Lord your God with everything, and the second one that's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. Everything stands on those two commands. So we have the Great Commission we have the great commandment. Every time you see this play button, church, I want you to think through those two passages. This is why we've taken that metaphor and said, everything points to share. It flows from this, this great love of God that we have, which flows into our great love of one another and brothers and sisters that we have, and it points to giving it all away. Now, Acts chapter 1, if you're not there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It's the story of the early church, written by Dr. Luke, as a follow-up to his gospel. It says this in verse 6. Follow along with me. Actually, don't even look there quite yet. Don't peek. This is Jesus about to ascend back to heaven, to his rightful place on the throne. He's already come. He's already died. He's already risen. He's appeared. And now you have the disciples getting a sense that he's leaving and they have kind of one last question for them. Okay? Before, this is an open book test, so don't peek. What do you think the last question from this, this little band of brothers that Jesus left the mission of the church, the future success of the church, this message, this gospel that's going to permeate all the ends of the earth, what do you think the last question is going to be back to Jesus? Here's what I would hope if I was Jesus and I was testing out how well I've trained these guys. I would hope it would be like one of boldness, one kind of like tiny clarifying detail or something like that. Okay, We're going to read now the last question the disciples ask of Jesus. Look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What? The last question you guys have for me is this. That, that you still think this is about an earthly rule takeover. You're still thinking the reward is right now. We no longer have to be ruled by other people. Our nation is finally to get, you know, its rightful place. Is that going to happen right now, Lord? Frankly, if I'm Jesus, which it's a good thing I'm not because I clearly have a sinful attitude on this, but I would just be crestfallen. I would think, come on, guys. In fact, I would think, you know what? I'm, I don't think it's time to go yet. I don't think you guys really have this. Clearly, another three years is in order. They asked this question thinking that it's somehow going to happen now. Now, the disciples had one thing right. They were right to view Jesus. Mind you, they'd walk with Jesus every day for three and a half years. They were right to view him as a rightful king. They were right to view him as one who had the means and the resources and the power to do an overthrow. They saw that in Jesus. They were wrong in the timing of things. And they were totally wrong on the strategy of things and the sphere of things. They were thinking so small, weren't they? They were thinking nation. They were thinking right here. They were thinking whatever couple decades they had left to enjoy it. That's not the kind of kingdom Jesus came to usher in and to initiate. Now, the answer must have frustrated them. Here here it is, verse 7. He, Jesus, said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You ever been frustrated as a kid when you asked a question and your parents said, Well, just wait and see? Just wait and see. Um, That constantly happens in our household. We have a couple that really want to know every detail. And I constantly say, just wait and see. Here's what you get to rest in. You get to rest in knowing that the times and the seasons are fixed. Someone else has the authority and is in control of that. While we're on this road trip, I already know where we're going to stop. I know where we're going to stay and sleep. That's all been handled. You don't have to worry about how to pay for it. You don't have to worry about which exit to take. You just be a kid. That's kind of the answer that they were giving back. It's not for you to know that information. Here's what you can rest in. It's known. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He gives them two certainties to walk in. Here it is. Ready? You, disciples, who just asked kind of the wrong question at the end, you will receive power. If you have a phone, pull it out for one second. So, if you have a phone, you're in the habit right now, you don't even think about doing this anymore, but you are in the habit of plugging it in every single night, almost, right? You plug this puppy in. Some of you drive along, use it so much, it's charged while you're going. Why do you give power to your phone? So it's like, be useful. It's got a purpose. When, you're, when your power runs out, you're done. God said this to him. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you are going to receive power. You don't gas up your car to let it sit in a driveway. You gas up your car to go. You disciples are going to get power because you're on a mission to go somewhere, to fulfill a purpose. So you will receive power. That's a certainty. The Holy Spirit has been promised as a down payment of sorts. Secondly, he says this, you will be my witnesses. You don't get to know the times and seasons. Those are fixed. That's not for you to know. You know what you need to know? You will receive power. You will be my witnesses. You know what the rest of the book of Acts does? It bears witness and unfolds that storyline. These guys lived changed lives. They were all of a sudden men filled with power. Not perfect, still did blundering things, still had some arguments, still had to figure out some counsels, right? But they started to walk in this new power. And for better or for worse, they were witnesses for Jesus Christ. And the church exploded. He gives them power and he gives them the commission to be witnesses For every parent that's ever had someone, uh, one of your kids come and say, but why? And then you've answered this way, because I said so. It's, it's a grace. It's a gift of God to be given instruction or idea of why we're told to go. We don't always get to know why we're commanded to do some things. Some of you walking by faith right now, moving in a direction that you say, this is the direction God's called me to go. I don't know all the details of it. Think back to Saving Private Ryan. There was bitterness within the ranks at times. Why are we trouncing all over these dangerous parts for one guy? What difference does that make? And there's questioning of the of the command and the authority. But sometimes, God gives us a glimpse as to why he's commanded us to do something. And with this mission, this great commission of go and make disciples, he's peeled back the curtain, he said, here's why. There's a lot more reasons, but let me just give you a couple that pop out to me. We proclaim because the gospel is the power of salvation to all people. He's given us that. He didn't have to tell us that, but he's told us that. It, the gospel, is the power to save, that's his means. So keep proclaiming the gospel. Keep bringing it back to Jesus. The last song we just sang, Beautiful, Walk through the gospel. Did you catch it? God, you've revealed yourself in nature. That's beautiful. God, you died on a tree. That's beautiful. God, you rose, uh, and that's beautiful. And God, you're coming again, and we're considered your bride. That's beautiful. Keep proclaiming the gospel, because it's the salvation to all people. We strive because lives are at stake. Think about the military. If you, if you knew you were going in to rescue someone who was trapped somewhere, who was held against their will, who had been kidnapped, and you could rescue them physically, some of you brave souls in this room would say, sign me up, I'm on that mission. Now, what if we could see clearly enough to say, man, this mission we're on from God, it's not just, it's not just lives that are at stake physically, but these are lives that are at stake physically, and eternally, because they're spiritual. So what if for all eternity you could make a difference? That's That's what we're on. That's the mission that we're on. One more movie reference. Cinderella Man. Cinderella Man is the relatively true story. I don't know how much Hollywood changed it but of a a boxer in kind of the Depression era. And he he had kind of a lackluster career. He was kind of moseying along, and his career wasn't that good. He was getting beat up a lot. And then all of a sudden, something changed for, for this guy. And does anyone remember what it was from the movie? What changed, what clicked for him that all of a sudden he became a phenomenal boxer and started winning again? Remember? He was hungry. That's exactly it. The depression hit, he was flat broke, and in an interview at one point he says this, he says, someone asked him, what changed? And he says this, I know what I'm fighting for, milk. He was fighting to feed his kids. All of a sudden you see your kids starving? He said, man, every punch, everything I'm doing, it all makes sense now. I see that, I think, wow, that's a picture of the church. Lackluster worship, Ho-hum Bible study. Yawning prayers. It's because we think we're just kind of in this little thing. If all of a sudden God peels back the curtain and he shows us a little glimpse of eternity and he says, no, 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 this is what you're fighting for. This is what's at stake. All of a sudden it changes our Bible study. It changes our coming to, to, to worship. We have it so good here. It's so important to travel. It's so important to talk with people from other countries. It's so important to connect with other brothers and sisters online or via other correspondence that you might have. It's so important to get your head around what our brothers and sisters are suffering and enduring around the world. Because it gives us a picture to say, Lord, wake us up. Don't let us just come and have another Sunday morning, kind of cruise through the motions and then get back to, to whatever else it might be. Only when we see what we're fighting for does the training and the discipline and the sacrifice and any pain that might be coming on right now make any sense at all. And then we joyfully walk forward in it. All right, not only is it clear, the mission is under attack. You know the mission of God is always under attack right now? It's the age we live in. The mission's clear, go and make disciples it's under attack i want to be crystal clear on something who is our enemy that we fight against who is our enemy who are we fighting against as christians satan. satan right it's not other people it's not those who disagree with us it's not those who are practicing a different religion it's not those who make fun of us for being a, you know a christ follower it's not other people Other people who are in that state and might be doing those things to us might be considered our enemies on one level. What did Jesus say to do to our enemies? Love them. Pray for those who what? Persecute you. It's like they're held captive. It's like they're kidnapped children under a regime. Their minds are darkened. They're the very ones we're left on earth to go and rescue and to save and to give the gospel to. So let me be crystal clear that, that some of the things you read about in the name of Christ, where there's been forcible takeovers, that's like the disciples thinking, we need to have a kingdom. How did Jesus woo people and enlist people into his army? It's his kindness that leads people to repentance. It's totally voluntary. It's kind of like new members up here are enlisting in an army, but it's totally backwards from 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 how you would normally think about it. So I just want to be crystal clear on that. Ephesians 6:12, just write that down, it says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly Places That ought to shape how we think, how we fight, how we strategize, how we march forward in this whole thing. Do you know that we're to know the devil's schemes? We're to be aware of them and understand them. doesn't mean I want you to go study the occult and get all into Ouija boards and all kinds of weird stuff. What it means is this. Don't don't just foolishly keep walking into the same attack time and time again. Be shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves, is the instruction Jesus gave to us. Let me walk through a couple of what I would see as attacks from, from the enemy, uh, both kind of historically and, and currently. Depending on your era, you might think of a frontal attack as a, as a blitzkrieg in, in one generation or shock and awe in another generation. What a frontal attack is this, it's just direct persecution. It's direct opposition to anything going on to a Christian going and making disciples. It's the frontal assault. This is the Romans burning Christians. It's historical. It's fact. It's tried to wipe out Christians before it got started. It didn't work. It's the communists outlawing Bibles and imprisoning and beating pastors. Didn't work. It's Islamic fundamentalists and radicals who are setting up totalitarian governments like we see in Mali right now. It's the direct frontal assault on anything Christian. Doesn't work. Here's another one. The blockade or the siege. This is where you would, uh, as a as a regime, you would let the old die out and you would target the young and the new. And you would mock the old as superstitions and uneducated country people not to be mimicked. This is what went on uh, with East Germany and the Czech Republic and Yugoslavia and Hungary. All these different things through the 60s and 70s. The state is your God. They set up, I don't know if you know this, but they set up ceremonies and rituals that directly countered what the church had. In the church, there was there was um, confirmation, which was a giant step of faith for a teen right in their formative years. And the state set up something just like it and basically said this, if you take confirmation, you're going to get penalized economically, with job, not being able to be at school, whatever else. But if you come to our ceremony, it's a giant party and everyone's doing it. And the state is your God. That's the kind of mentality that was set up. There was a certain religious freedom, but it was subversive. It was just, we're, we're just going to put up a wall and stop the flow and start with the young training up an, an atheistic mindset. Do you know that decades later now we see that the gospel actually caught on like wild. Th- Wildfire in, in that circumstance? Like wildfire. Um, we see registered and puppet churches versus the underground church. What a blockade did was it, it forced churches somewhat to go underground and be, and be covert. We see this in Romania and in China, to be sure. The other mentality was to keep out all foreign influence. This was China's idea. This was Albania. It just said no foreign influence whatsoever because we certainly don't want that propaganda coming in. Here's another one, flank maneuvers. This is where the church is weakened by distraction and entertainment. Maybe this sounds a little familiar to you and I. There's infighting over pettiness and rivalry, not only within church to church, battling over territory and rivalry and some of that nonsense, but within the church petty arguments back and forth and kind of immobilizing you from the mission. It's like you're fighting a war on four fronts instead of marching forward. It's the tactic of lulling the sleep to church to a lullaby called status quo, where we just kind of get to this comfortable level. And I'll tell you, church, we need to fight against this. As a new startup church, we're six and a half years old. Do you know the the norm is that a six and a half year old church Will be full of activity, full of idealism, full of mission. And then what starts to happen? There tends to be this gradual kind of coast down to where we all kind of, you know, get tired. It's hard work. Let's not be that church. Part of why we're talking about this is that we would not be that church. Let's not be that statistic. There's others, but finally, I just want to talk about infiltration. Double agents, turncoats. The Bible uses terms like this, false teachers, counterfeit shepherds. You know what's so tricky about this? Those who would be a false shepherd, who would never lay their life down for a sheep, but would run from, from conflict. Those who would be a false teacher, that instead of leading people toward the path of God, are actually leading people away from God, actually think they're speaking in God's name. They don't know they're false teachers. They're not necessarily coming in with, with a sneaky mindset of saying, I'm going to trick these people. They actually believe what they say, and that's so powerful and so deadly. I'm looking at some faces who have people, family members, who have, who have been duped by false teachers, who right now are praying for people to see clearly what's going on with that. This tactic's been used by the enemy to deceive people, leading them away from God. Do you know that there are those from within the evangelical circle, and I kind of use that phrase a little bit loosely, that says that the work of proclaiming Jesus as the only way to salvation is outdated, arrogant, and altogether unnecessary. Do you know that? There are... A lot of books, a lot of ink has been poured out and paper used to communicate ideas that you could go down to Berean Christian bookstore and read a bunch of nonsense that says this, the work of proclaiming the mission I just laid out as fundamental is outdated, arrogant, and useless. And they would claim themselves to be evangelicals. Peter seemed to think it was needed. In Acts chapter 4, he says this, he's preaching a sermon, he says this, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, no haziness there, crystal clear who we're talking about, whom you crucified, he's talking to people who crucified him, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. A guy had just been healed. He goes on to say this, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has, come to be, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. By which we must be saved. Don't follow false teachers. Don't be deceived by a really slick, popular book that leads you away from the mission that Jesus left for us. I think if we recover a couple of doctrines, it will help guard against this. The doctrine of the church is called ecclesiology. If you want to impress your friends, say, our church is in a little ecclesiology series right now. They're like, wow, you must speak Latin. Nope, just learned it at church. Um, It's just the doctrine of the church. It's really important to, to talk about what we're talking about. There's so much discussion about community and authenticity and all these different things. And if you know your history, you can kind of see some patterns. Every few years, people want to come and reinvent the church. Within the last 10 years, there's been a lot of books that have said this, basically, throw everything out. One book was not so subtle. He says, everything must change. That's that's what what the book is called. Everything must change. If you've been at this long enough, in America, what you tend to see is these cycles. People make these bold statements lacking any kind of humility and lacking any kind of perspective of the history of the church and really lack biblical perspective, I would add. And they look downright silly 10 years later. They look utterly foolish 25 years later. When the things that they said are on the on verge, and they sold a lot of books because there's kind of a sky is falling mentality, everything must change. And then it doesn't bear out as true. I'm going to pick on someone because he's very well read and he wrote some things in 1990. So we've, we've given ourselves a little bit of time here, okay? This is George Barna called the, the Frog in the Kettle. So you can kind of get a sense of what he's talking about with the church. It's all in the church. He calls it The Frog in the Kettle. Here's what he said in 1990. He said the 1990s church was either going to, quote, explode with new growth or quietly fade into a colorless thread in the fabric of secular culture. Ooh, that was well phrased. Wrong and wrong. I mean, time's borne it out now. It hasn't exploded. We have hard data on the number of people that attended church in 1990 when he wrote that and the number of people who, who will attend church this weekend. It hasn't exploded and it hasn't faded into oblivion. Elsewhere, he writes this, that of all the different challenges that are facing the church, the number of local churches certainly isn't the problem. We have plenty of those. You know what the hottest thing right now in almost every evangelical circle? It's church planting. The cry is this, we need more churches. (laughs) I mean, it looks foolish now to say those things. I could pick on a lot of other writers who wrote, what we need is this. And then today we would look back and say, that's inauthentic, and that's totally, utterly against what it is. So here's, here's my point in bringing this out. We need to recover a good doctrine of the church. And you know what our textbook should be? This. We ought to just go back and look at this. We also need to recover the doctrine of original sin. This, by far, is the most important doctrine that will keep you on mission. And if you lose the doctrine of original sin, all of a sudden calling people to confess their sins, to repent, and to trust in the name of Jesus Christ makes no sense. It does become outdated. It does become arrogant. It does become intolerant. It does become useless. Our problem both inside the church with all of her failings, and I'm talking about us, not some other church, and outside the church with all of its rebellion and all the perversity that's out there, is sin. It's always been sin. It always will be sin. So 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 catch this. Sinning saints and sinning sinners is the problem. What's the common denominator? Sin, right? It's original sin. It's the idea that we were born as rebels to God. Not only by our nature, but by our choices that we make. You know why rediscovering this is so good? It's because our great need and celebration of a Savior becomes vibrant and living to us. I hope you tear up sometimes when you sing a song about a God who saves you, about a God who rescues you, about a God who atoned for, paid for your sin. Not because I want you all to be emotional, because I want you to get in touch with the fact that, well, that's me. God's dealing with my sin when we, when we look at a cross like this, when we sing about this, when we open up and read what it is that Jesus did for us. and We rest in that. I quoted from John MacArthur earlier, I intentionally left out a, a part. Here's what he actually says. He says this, God's will is that people be saved. And then here's what I left out. And basic to salvation is the recognition of sin. This lays it right at your feet. And then he gives the two choices. It's God's will that you would come to him and be saved. If you've already made that decision, it's God's will that you would go and save others on mission from a missionary God. That's it. Those are the choices. But do you see how remove recognition of sin and it becomes a little bit more optional? remove the doctrine of original sin, or water that down, or soften it. Who likes to talk about sin? No one. We like to talk about personality quirks, and parental traits, and disorders, and other kinds of things. I certainly don't like to talk about my sin. But praise God, it's shoved in my face so I can celebrate a Savior. Finally, our mission is upside down to to our natural ways, And our sin nature will always resist it. The mission of God is upside down to us. I would turn your attention to the Beatitudes, Jesus preaching. He says, blessed are the who? Just name out a few. Yeah, peacemakers and those who mourn and and some of these different things. And you go, huh? Not the rich and the powerful and the famous and the good looking? Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake? What? He went on to, to make some pretty radical claims. Give to get. Die to live. Love those who hate you. Suffer to thrive. Give more to those who take from you. Bless those who curse you. Get low to be lifted up. Any of that makes sense to your flesh? Uh-uh. Any of that makes sense to your sin nature, which tends to grab for power, grab for notoriety, grab for your comfort, grab for your security? No, it doesn't. It's totally backwards to that. The picture this morning is to remind us that Jesus invites us to an upside-down kingdom in an upside-down kind of way. But here's the kicker. When God pulls back the veil and you see it, it it, it all of a sudden it it makes you realize, wow, I've been upside-down my whole life. This is right-side-up. The importance of understanding that the mission is upside-down to us is that as we march forward on mission with God, our sin nature will constantly try to grab the reins and kind of turn it towards something else. But God, don't you want help with this? But God, don't you mean this? So it becomes imperative for us as his instruments to constantly be checking back in from him. Lord, I don't want to hire someone who looks like the right candidate for this work. I want the one who you've decided for this work. I know that my eyes will tend to look at a resume. My eyes will tend to look at qualifications. My eyes will tend to look physically at the outside person. And my filters are broken. Jesus, I want you to have the person that you have for this job. Would you help me with that? That's the prayer. God, I'm ministering to this person. It seems like what ought to be done is this. You check in with the Holy Spirit. Is that what you're doing in this person? I want to invite the band up. I've referenced Brother Andrew and God Smuggler, just wrapped that up on vacation. And I bring him up because of this. I, I would challenge you, I would invite you to read some of the great biographies. There's a lot of movies that have been made about a lot of different lives. There are just some some great little biographies that have been written over the years. This is a guy who later on he learned there was kind of a Um, Defense of Freedom of Information Act that we have. There's something kind of similar in Russia that went on um, after some things broke down with communism. And some papers came out that, that they discovered that the KGB, required reading for the KGB, was the book God's Smuggler, in which this guy, Brother Andrew, outlines all the things he's doing to smuggle Bibles into the country. At the time he was doing it. Here's the brilliance of that. The, the way that he got in, it wasn't that he was so clever and kept changing his routes and all of that. They knew what he was doing. But his prayer was really simple. God, you made um, blind eyes see. Would you make seeing eyes blind? He would pray that as he went across borders. He would pray that as he went through and had different kinds of meetings. And God used him in a really powerful way. Hudson Taylor, William Carey, Brother Yoon in China, Man, read some of these stories. You know what it will do? It will free you from kind of our perspective that that modern and current is best. You will recapture some disciplines and some things you say, wow, this person's prayer life is unlike anything I've ever experienced myself or have, uh, have have I witnessed in my friends. God, you've got more for me in this. There's more in learning to walk in the power of faith of Christ that I'm not experiencing because I'm reading about some of the things you've done here. William Carey said this expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. I'm going to close with hopefully something very practical. These are some marching orders. John Piper said it this way there are three possibilities with the Great Commission. You can go, you can send, or you can be disobedient. <laughs> Pretty simple. Go, send people to go, or be disobedient. He says, ignoring the cause is not a Christian option. You know what I'm so encouraged at? I'm so encouraged that tons of faces in this room uh, just spent six weeks on a Wednesday night just learning how to share your faith more, getting fired up about personal evangelism, saying, this mission, this saving Private Ryan, this destroying the ring, this going and making disciples... Is so important to me that I'm going to take time on a Wednesday night. We're going to shut down our community group to pour some energy into recapturing that. So encouraged by that. Amen. Here's your three things. One is this. Daily, consciously reaffirm yourself under God's rule and in his service. Just consciously wake up and say, God, I'm yours. And then then here, here it is. Live as his that day. Live and walk as His. If you're not at the point where you could pray that, then here's my other challenge to you. Stop rebelling against God. Stop running from God. Wake up to the things of God. Submit your life to Him. Start that relationship so that tomorrow morning you can wake up and say, God, I'm living as Yours today. I consciously place my hand in in Your hands. Number two is this. Put on the armor of God. Put on all of God's armor. Keep sober and alert and vigilant. That's your part. And trust in God's faithfulness to keep you. That's God's part. So he's given us some things to do, but also trust in his faithfulness. Matthew 16, 18 ensures that our eventual victory is is there, but it also ensures us that a fight is on. Number three is this stay with your platoon. In this sense, it would be your church. Stay with your church. Don't go marching off and thinking that you're having church in a park, in the woods, studying birds, whispering some prayers now and then. Stay with your platoon and get on with the work. And know that the battle is all God's. Psalm 67, five says this. What a great short little prayer that ought to just... Grab us by the throat and lift our imagination as to what could be done. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let's pray. God, would you help us capture a vision for what the word all means in this psalm? Your desire is that all men, all women, all children, everywhere would be saved and the vehicle that gets the gospel to them is us I thank you God for the the calling the missionary stirring that is going on in the lives of some people in our congregation right now would you raise up just the right support just the right encouragement just the right open door just the right bonfire of passion at the right time to make it so. God, would you use us to accomplish your fame amongst all people groups. God, this morning we're mindful and we lift up our brothers and sisters who've committed their lives to going to the ends of the earth in your name. Let it start here. Let it continue here, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.